Thanks for listening to The World We Deserve, the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's True Detective Anthology, brought to you by Bald Move. This conversation covers Season 1, Episode 3, titled The Locked Room. From the dusty mesa, her looming shadow While out with his wife at a bar, Marty spots Lisa with another man. Later that night, he shows up at her house, drunk and angry. He breaks in and he threatens the man with criminal charges and physical violence. Meanwhile, the detectives have tracked down the pastor of last episode's burned-down church, but the investigation is at another dead end. Desperate and running out of time, Russ digs through old cases and finds one of a murdered girl who has a spiral tattoo just like the one on Dora Lang. They discover that the girl's boyfriend was a man named Reggie Ledoux, who coincidentally was a cellmate of Charlie Lang. Ledoux has skipped parole, and so they have their first suspect. So after having seen episode three of this first season, what do you think? I am madly in love with this episode in the series as I have always been. <laughs> Already? And No, I mean, I, I told you from the very <laughs> I know, first, I, I was sucked in and... Uh, you know, this debate about religion and uh, what its effects on society is like mother's milk to me. I uh-huh. loved it all. And at the same time, the conspiracy and the murder case we're trying to blow open gets like a just really see feels like the scope expands. And also the other yeah. mystery, which I guess that's I, I didn't articulate this in the first episode. I talked about how this is different in police procedurals and that, yes, you are investigating this mystery that you're trying to work out what actually happened. But there's Mm -hmm. also a mystery about the detectives themselves and whether they're reliable narrators and whether you're getting something as true or not and all that, which I find fascinating. And here is a great example of an episode where you have this man that in the first two episodes, especially in the first episode, you've got solid family man, has conventional values, conventional view, worldviews, mm-hmm. and as seen as a, a higher-functioning person. And you have this other person who has these radical opinions and these radical nihilist thoughts, and he's seen as a self-destructive, crazy person. Yeah. But as we go further in the series, you start to question, who is the crazy one? Uh-huh. Marty engages in insane behavior. Insane, crazy, risky, self-destructive behavior. He does, yeah. And Easily I- worse than anything we've seen Russ doing. As far as that mystery goes, um, uh-huh. we'll we'll get right back to the insane, destructive behavior. Yeah. But the mystery is set up visually, too, which I really like. The, the difference between how Rust looks while he's investigating this thing and how Rust looks while he's being interrogated sure. or questioned is so stark that you have to go, how did this man get to that place? How, how did Rust of 1995 become Rust of 2012, you know? Uh, so visually, they set up a mystery, which I thought was cool. As far as Marty, yeah, I mean, very much our perception of his character has changed over these past few episodes. And at this point, I feel like the most poignant question of this episode is, are you a bad man? Rust answers that affirmatively. Yes, I am, but we need bad men like me to keep other bad men from the door. Right. What he says. Now, I don't know that I would totally agree with him. Maybe he has more information and he understands that he is bad, so that's interesting because like it's something I was thinking about when I was driving around today is I talked about how badass it was that Rust came in and just smacked those dudes at the toolbox. However, from a policing standpoint, yeah, yeah, that's terrible. But I, <laughs> I feel like maybe from a moral standpoint, it's not. He's trying to get to the bottom of this, and I, I don't know that that justifies that action. Sure. That's the thing. But it's like, certainly something to consider, right? You know, it's like, you know, we all kind of agree when we're watching Batman or in this case, True Detective that <laughs> the Batman's a good guy. The Batman's a good guy and he has good motives and he's doing all he's he's doing all these things that are society society doesn't approve of and accept and are outside the legal system because it's going to a greater good. The but end th- justifies the means. But one thing that's fascinating about True Detective is, you know, that's why I say about unreliable narration. If you just took what Marty's statements to the police about everything he said about family and all that stuff, you would think that he was this fine, upstanding, moral, a good father, a good husband. As sure. we go along and we see, we see that that's not accurate at all. Which also, I think, makes us question everything that we're finding out about the present. Now, I think the thing that I've started to decide in this episode was that the things we can see with our eyes and hear, like, there's not false narration into when Russ says, hey, let's talk about Reggie Ledoux. 
that they're going to show us these past events through his eyes. I think when we go back to the past, we're actually seeing what is actually happening. It seems like And then it, we see yeah. the men spin on it in the interrogation room. Whereas in the first two episodes, I started thinking I wasn't sure whether when Marty kicks off a flashback, if we are actually seeing things from his perspective. And then, you know, it's going to be like one of these he said, she said type things that by the end, you'll get a 360 degree view. I don't think that's true. I think that. Well, the hallucinations are a wrinkle, right? I mean, literally what Marty's ah, seeing is not fucker. the same as what Rust is seeing. Just like that. Ow. <laughs> case case closed. You're right, because the sky doesn't turn to jam, and sparrows don't <laughs> have a murmuration that looks like a occult symbol in the sky. They do play with the point of view, right? Like, I mean, obviously, it's not Rust, Rust's point of view when he goes to uh, his mistress's house and beats, threatens to beat the shit out of the guy she's sleeping with. Marty, uh, you know, that, yeah, that's, yeah, 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 that's yeah. Marty's viewpoint. Yeah, so yeah, it does yeah. switch back and forth. But um, would you also say that? You can kind of overlook that wrinkle hallucination loophole by saying that at least Rust is aware that he's hallucinating. And he's, I, I think so, yeah. He, he identifies those as such. He does. And the show identifies them to us as an audience, right? Yeah. Like that's, I think, the most important thing is that we as an audience get communication on yeah. that. And they've been doing that consistently, I think. Yeah. Like even like... Except for maybe the little girl, that was a little confusing. But, but I think you re you're meant to think that that's a hallucination. And also, like, if you look at that in context of everything we've seen before, is when Russ sees that little girl, he immediately asks Marty, do you believe in ghosts? Which okay. now, yeah. if we context that with, with, with what we learned in this episode, that that's kind of like, I think, uh, the, the creators of this suggesting that if we were privy to this conversation, we'd then say that as like, Mart, uh, the Rust is seeing something, he knows it's not real. Yeah. And he's commenting to Marty and also us as the audience to let us know. I think you're right. That's not just some random girl standing on the corner. It's actually either him hallucinating how old his girl would be at this time or, yeah. you know, one of the victims. I, I still don't know we have enough information to say definitively, but it does seem that they're playing consistent when Rust has a hallucination that he lets us as an audience know that isn't real. And this episode does a lot with that. You know, I mean, Marty is straight up lying most of this episode, not only to himself, but to the detectives who are investigating. He's telling them things that simply aren't true. Yes. Um, and we see that in the flashbacks, which we're taking as canon, I guess, uh, of what happened in 1995. Yeah, that's what I was always worried about watching the show. It's like, will we see something that Russ sees because he does hallucinate and then we see it from Marty's perspective and it completely changes how we perceive. Okay. The case. If they had conflicting views of what happened in 95, that would be, yeah. Yeah. But, but it seems like Russ's hallucinations are for the most part, fantastic enough that you kind of question even like the little girl, like we knew something was wrong about that. Sure. But but the fact that he called it out is like, oh, do you believe in ghosts? It seems to make explicit. So as long as I can trust the the filmmakers, uh, you know, Pizzolatto and Fukunaga, as long as I can trust them that they're not going to fuck with me on that, then yeah. then I'm I'm fine. Okay. I, I think so far we're good. But there was a there's enough tension about that that it was something that I was still kind of like going back and forth. And I I wasn't annoyed. I thought it was interesting. And and I'll I, I think it's cool, and I've seen some movies, I can't think of any offhand, where they play with the idea of for your perceptions, and like, I guess Sixth Sense is a perfect example okay. of, yep. you know, them showing us things that are not real, but in a, in a visually consistent manner, and then later showing us the reality of it from an, like an objective external third person view that shows us how those, those things. So it's like, and that What's didn't feel the, like a uh, cheat. What's the, the magician movie with Christian Bale in it? Oh, the prestige uh, prestige does that too. It's yeah. another that's Christopher uh, Nolan. Yeah. He likes to fuck with the audience. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. But in a way that feels fair. And yeah. Intellectual totally. valid. Whereas mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm always, always, always bitching about the usual suspects. Yeah. At being the right. opposite case. Now, some people found that enjoying, or they they found okay. that that reveals uh, a lot of enjoyment. I felt like anger and and hostility. <laughs> I think that makes you a bad man. Yeah, well, you know, we need we need bad men to keep uh, bad filmmakers away from the <laughs> cinema. See, that's the other question here: is what is it that actually makes you a bad man? Your actions or your thoughts? If if Rust's actions so far haven't shown me that he's a bad man, are his thoughts enough to do that? 
Yeah, but that's again like you know he he hit that guy in the face with a toolbox for just refusing him to tell him something that was well within his rights. <laughs> like that's yeah, that's that's not a great thing. But does that one action make him a bad man? It makes we've him a bad. It makes him a bad cop. Things. Do we need bad cops to to handle the true ills of society? That's a dangerous road to go down. But it's a fair question. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's so. I guess what we should say is vigilantes in fiction, awesome. Vigilantes in yes. real life, bad idea. I think so. I I, I will state that for the record. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Not very controversial. That's what I find so fascinating about the this show um, going forward is the difference between the two and how that shapes who they are and who they think they are. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I don't know that Rust is a bad guy. I don't think that Marty is a good guy, even mm-hmm. though he seems to think he is. Right. Uh, and that's the other thing, too. In this episode, we start to see that coming apart from Marty as well. Mm-hmm. He is, instead of being like, don't, yeah, you don't say that shit. Like, yeah. people around here aren't going to buy that. Yeah. Instead, he's asking questions. Mm. Do you think you're a bad guy? He's the one starting to ponder more of these things, and he's seeking Rust's opinion right. on who he is and what he should feel and think. Right. He's saying, don't say that. You can't act this way. And he's living his life that because he says like, hey, look, I try to keep things simple. I keep it very separate. Yeah. Everything's neat and orderly. And this, and, and like at some point, this this voiceover literally, um, you know, you got to have rules. You got to have a system. It gives you the shape of things. And as he's doing this voiceover, it shows him breaking down his mistress's door and beating the shit out of her, her boyfriend. And then he mm-hmm. asserts, I'm not a psycho. And then the voiceover resumes, you know, Russ needed a family. It's the boundaries. Boundaries are good. Yeah, he slips right back into that. And then they pop back with this long, like it feels like it's 30 seconds as Woody Harrelson kind of like staring off in the distance. Like he's having, which is kind of weird because you're right. He has that monologue or he asks Rust about, am, or, or, am I a bad person or do you believe that we're bad people? But then, you know, several years later, he's having that kind of same internal reflection. Yes, it feels like he hasn't been fully able to let go of the idea he has of himself as this good guy and this guy, this family man. He he certainly seems to believe it less, mm-hmm. but he's still espousing it yeah. to these detectives. That's no, like one of those uh, have your cake and eat it too types. Like if you want family and children, you have to make certain sacrifices to have a hat. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you can have an open relationship with your wife and you can negotiate all that stuff and, and have it. I mean, but most people don't. Most sure. people go the route yeah. of I want to have be with you and, and, and one and only and be with you forever and ever and ever. But I also really like to fuck attractive people. And I don't want to give that up. And I want to stay out the guys and drink beer. Like they want all the good things about everything that they do in the world. And they don't want any of the downsides of anything. Sure. And I I think that's a natural tendency. Sure. But uh, I mean, maybe that's one of the things that makes you a bad man, you know, not being able to give that up, even though you've made commitments to people. The fact you make sacrifices like, you know, there's a cause like you can tell in these episodes that that Rust is aware of the sacrifices he's made of being a loner. Yeah. But like he said, there's this, you know, I know who I am and I, I I like this person and there's a kind of triumph to that to where, and it's weird that Rust is still like he's degenerated into this stringy, like drunk all the time, <laughs> not doing anything like, and, and Marty still has this suit and he still looks very mm-hmm. healthy and he's got less hair and all that stuff. But he, if you said like, which is the homeless weirdo crazy guy self-destructive <laughs> and who is the 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 more integrated real human being you'd say well it's marty but M- russ seems like he's a lot more content and satisfied with himself he does yeah he is consistent in how he views himself certainly with the way he acts you know he doesn't he doesn't pretend to be anything that he's not and i think that's i i think a component of being a good person is honesty I don't know that you can necessarily be a good person if you go around constantly lying to everyone. Right. Um, I think that pushes you toward bad man. And in that respect, I think Marty is in a worse boat sure. than Rust, is a worse man than Rust. And, and you got to be honest with yourself about who you are and what you want out of the world um, before you can start being honest with other people. Yeah. And that's what I think it's interesting, the dichotomy between Marty saying these things and then living in a way that is completely the opposite of them. That he's well, not even I mean, being honest with himself. I think that Rust has opened an Etsy shop that he's running out of the back of a bar where he sells tin can men. Sure. Uh, and he just, 
you know, he doesn't drink because he wants to drink. He drinks to make his product. <laughs> he's not a bad man. He's he's making these cool things for people. <laughs> uh, hmm. He charges a little too much, I got to say. Does 40, he? $40 for a tin can man is... Oh, wow. Well, you know, that's that's a it's it's a lot of crap. Plus, you know, the liver damage. He's trying to save up for <laughs> inevitable dialysis he's going to need and yep. liver transplant. The, the other interesting thing about Marty this episode is that I think he is starting to change. Like I said earlier, he's starting to at least ask questions. I felt like he had a moment of clarity. Like when he goes into inspect uh, his mistress's apartment uh-huh. when that guy's there. Uh, somehow he controls himself and he comes out of that situation not having beat the shit out of someone. I felt like he had a small moment of clarity between what happens there, what he s- talks about with his wife in their bedroom, and then when he starts asking questions with Rust, I think there's a small progression from man who is insanely jealous, completely in denial, doesn't give a shit about how his wife feels and how his family feels and what he's doing to other people to a man who is at least thinking about it. Yeah. And maybe that turning point is when he says, I'm not a psycho and he's standing around two very afraid people that clearly looking at him like he is a psycho. Yeah. You got to take a look in the mirror at that point and say, I'm not a psycho, but I am acting psychotically. And maybe that's why he goes on to ask questions of rust. That's the thing. Like he got to like, I'm all fucked up. And she says, yes, you are. And then have sex. That was the end of the conversation instead of the beginning. It was. It really was the beginning of the true conversation. Maybe I'm judging him a little too harshly there that he wasn't. I mean, I don't know. He he does outright manipulate his wife left, right, and center, though. Like it's true. The the emotional manipulation abuse he applies on this poor woman is unconscionable. Yeah, I don't know why, but some for some reason I got the feeling that she kind of chose to end the conversation there she with wants a to small him. moment of growth. Yeah, that's and, probably and smart. She, she wants to just, you know, over time uh, erode away this barrier versus trying to get over it in one big leap. And I don't I don't know that I have a problem with that strategy. Okay. It's indicative of the fact that I find the mystery about the detectives as fascinating or more fascinating than the case itself that I found it very hard to follow the breakthroughs of the case. Yes. And maybe we should talk about because that. Because the show doesn't care that much. <laughs> yeah. Like it really hasn't moved much since the very beginning. And that's kind of the real-time narrative thing. It's like Rust and Marty know what the hell's going on. If you don't, then keep watching. And it'll it's it's very sure. wire-esque because the wire didn't really give a shit about your personal comfort or confusion either. We're throwing you in the middle of this thing and just gonna pile on characters and situations and facts and you either sink or swim. Honestly don't care. And I got a little yeah. bit of that opinion uh, with this, too. Well, especially the end of this episode. It's pretty confusing. They pull up to this old abandoned school, and they're talking to this yard worker about, um, you know, the, the school's history school, and his yeah. involvement with it. And mm-hmm. Marty gets a call that uh, Reggie LeDude served time with the other guy who's uh, Dora Lang's wife, or husband, right? They spent four months together as a cellmate, and mm-hmm. that puts him on red alert, and they go screaming off to go talk to him again because... Yeah, I mean, that's the part that's really confusing. Like, where are they driving to? And then they show this image of the guy in his underwear with the gas mask and the machete, Let's which is a assume terrifying as, image. It, it really is. Like, that is what <laughs> you think of as a person that's behind these these heinous crimes. Yeah, I mean, it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre back before that was a thing. Yeah. When it was released, you know? Yeah. And the the voiceover, uh, you know, that, that Rust is talking about this really um, kind of insane rambling about people wanting to die and the, mm-hmm. the, the dream that they have. And, and the other thing that really hit me, and it almost like made me jump, is you're so fixated on this horrific figure striding around this unkempt yard that you almost don't even notice the devil trap until it fully snaps into focus. Where was that? That was in that was <laughs> oh, you almost don't notice. No, it? no, no. So he was walking in didn't. from stage left, and okay. then on the right, and in this screen, there is a devil trap right in the foreground. Oh wow, I didn't even notice that. Huh. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, okay, so that that is painting the picture that this is Reggie Ledoux. This is the guy, and it was very confusing to me that they would be racing off to grab him, and and that image at the end really ties into that but in in actuality they're going to the prison and they're rushing there because they only have a few days to break the case yes uh and also 
we're led to believe that this is a a big this is kind of the climax of the story because there's talking about the shoot like you want to hear about the big shootout when we took the guy down and and mm-hmm. even uh rust is like and now we come to reggie ledoux like this is this is a big and you know we're going into episode yeah. four we're right in the middle of the season this is this feeling like we're heading toward the mini climax pinpointed like episode four as being when you were really engaged with this with this series but when i yeah. was watching this i wonder like are, were, did you watch this and were not engaged because i thought like some of this stuff was really thought-provoking and like in the you know religion society and what it means to be civilized and all that stuff i thought would be it's not as bleak it's more intellectually interesting were you warming up to the show like what did you think when you first saw this was this the thing where you started to being like more engaged or yeah i mean maybe it opened it up to me a little bit because i i feel like you know the value of religion and whether or not any of it makes sense or is valid is a more a more interesting and useful argument to have than does existence matter <laughs> like nihilism and atheism uh-huh. are two very different things uh, are and, they? <laughs> I, in my opinion, yes. And, and one has a lot more value than the other. One thing I've always thought was interesting is that, you know, we live in a Christian nation, not necessarily because it was founded that way, et cetera. And I know there's a lot of debate to be had there, but it's inarguably that the majority population are Christian. Sure. What does it feel like to be a Christian or anyone that believes in God or organized religion? Because uh, I don't think anybody gets off easy in, in this episode. What is it like to watch and be a fan of the show when you mm-hmm. have one of the heroic characters laying out a a worldview that seems to kind of repudiate the great religions of the world? Mm-hmm. And I would say he's handing the guy who is defending that worldview his ass. Now, if I was a religious person, maybe I would say, well, maybe it's a draw. You know, Marty would get some good looks sure. in there. Russ gets some look, looks in there. But then that mouthpiece, Marty Hart, that's espousing that worldview, mm-hmm. is shown to be a very hypocritical, uh, terrible human being. Hmm. Like, I, okay. I wonder what, is there any kind of, like, cognitive dissonance? Or did they see you that? they that turns people off? Well, it's like, I don't know, because like I'm I'm speaking as a uh, agnostic that doesn't believe in supernatural things. And I love Penny Dreadful. And it's all about witches and warlocks and vampires okay. and things that don't exist and casting doubt on the rational world. And I yeah, just see yeah. that as like, okay, well, that's just kind of like, you know, it's a fiction. Sure. It's a and, little fun flight of fancy there, you know. And, I, and then maybe that's that's part of my uh, not being able to get another worldview is I maybe the, the the religious people watching this is like, well, it's fiction. Like, you know, this is the writer. He's if I was there as Marty, I'd give a better defense or, you know, I I don't I'm not a terrible human hypocritical human being. So I don't have that problem or I wonder if they even think about it. Uh, No, I imagine they do think about it. I imagine they see that and they go, you know, Marty's not giving the best defense or or if I were on the other side of this and Marty was giving a bunch of arguments that Russ just couldn't defend against. Even though there may be arguments out there that he could use to defend against that, I would be like, well, uh, that kind of sucks because, you know, maybe I would argue it better or maybe someone more intelligent would argue it better. And that's not a good representation of what my particular group of people believes. It may be. Uh, So maybe it's offensive on that level. Like, you're not doing a good job of representing what I actually believe. Yeah. I mean, what started me thinking about this is when I was watching this episode, I had this flashback to when we were out in Albuquerque at the Breaking Bad Fan Fest. Uh, you know, we met a lot of fans and one of them came up to me. We we're both drunk and we had a perfectly pleasant conversation. And he's like, you know, I love you guys and I think you're great. I just can't see how you guys don't believe in God. Yeah. And he was taking essentially the Marty side of the equation. And I was taking a less cynical, less nihilistic version of the rust thing. And <laughs> okay. he made the same argument. It's like, a good plan. you got it. You know, if you don't believe in God, like how, why don't you like, you know, what's to keep you from just Murder doing whatever and, the hell you want right. and, and do your own selfish pleasures and all that stuff. And I was like trying to articulate that that is a very hearing people say that is extremely scary from an agnostic standpoint. 
Like you're just one I lapse agree. of faith yeah. away from becoming an axe murderer. <laughs> they, See, but I, I don't totally buy that people believe that. And I know that's that's a, offensive I know. To, to people who do espouse to believe that. Yeah. But that is you We're giving you saying, the benefit of the doubt. We, uh, really, that's, yes, me giving you the benefit of the doubt that if you were to have a lapse of faith, if something went wrong and you stopped believing in God, you wouldn't go out and kill. Right. I, I like to believe that because... I want to give you a little more credit. Sure. It's like, you know, that. you got one of, if you've got a a person you know that's like all about stockpiling ammo and guns for the, you know, doomsday situation when the shit hits the fan. Uh-huh. It's like, are you really going to shoot your neighbors if they need food? <laughs> I don't think you will. Maybe you will, but I want to not believe that about you. <laughs> it's, it's one of those situations. Yeah. Yeah, it's a strange thing. So I... Like, I don't want to tell people that they don't actually believe what they say they believe. But at the same time, I think there there is a reason beyond God for people to be good. Sure. For people to not want to kill, to not want to disturb these societal groups that give them so much other benefit. Well, I think the difference between, like, you and I was that, like, I really sincerely believed in my religious worldview when I had it. And... It's weird because I can put myself, I, I remember what it felt to think those things and to be the Marty Hart in the situation, huh. minus yeah, yeah. the adultery and the brutality <laughs> of side pieces, boyf- boyfriends and all that stuff. But I can remember what it's like to feel that. Yeah. And it didn't feel like cognitive dissonance or that I was stalking out my mind or I was saying anything particularly crazy because it's it's essentially how you view the world. Yeah. Um. And, like, you know, how you've heard the world is internally consistent to your own brain, so there's no, like, real problem That's there. the thing. If there's nothing telling you that you're wrong... I will say that when I was that fundamentalist Christian, I would never watch Detective for many reasons. Really? Okay. Uh, but, well, but primarily, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, well, they're talking shit about God, so okay. that's not something I want a part of. I don't want them shaking my faith. Yeah, I mean, that's the difference. I never had a, a particular worldview. But then again, maybe I've, if I'm looking back, I maybe my core... My core fear was that my faith was fragile. Because if you have faith mm. and it's it's based on something solid, then why would you be afraid of a television show shaking it? Sure. I mean, I, does Rust say that in this? That, I mean, he essentially says that they're all scared and they're all pitiful and pathetic, and they like to dump that onto um, another person who is the preacher in this case who can, you know, take all that from them, lighten their burden, mm-hmm. um, and and carry that for them. And yeah. I psychologically, I, I imagine that's probably part of it. I, I'm not going to totally disagree with Rust here. Right. I, I think he might be onto something, but Marty right. definitely does. Right. I want to talk a little bit about the techniques that Rust used in that in the box, in the locked room. I noticed that he slips into full-on preacher mode here, right? He's sure. using the exact tools. Yep. Unburden yourself. You are not flawed. You are exactly how God made you, things that we know Russ doesn't actually believe. Right. And he uses that as a tool to get into this guy's head and get a confession out of him. Well, it also harkens back to the previous episode where Marty said that Rust had a real skill at sniffing out people's weaknesses. Yeah. And it makes me think, like, what would how would Rust interrogate himself? Oh, man. Because... Probably go to his daughter, I'd imagine. But how, I mean, that's the thing, like, how would he get a handle on a man like Rust's weaknesses? And I wonder if, um, I I started thinking, like, if Rust is the bad guy. Because this episode, I really start, even though they started showing Marty as being this monstrous person, I'm thinking, this is a red herring to, to, to draw me away from a lot of obvious warning signs about Rust because Rust is going on about, hmm, okay. you know, looking at these dead bodies. And you know what you see in their final moments that they welcome it, that yeah. it's relief, that they were afraid. And now they see how yeah. easy it is to let go, that, you know, it's all this dream that you had inside a locked room that calls back to the episode's title, you know, that you just dream about being person. And I'm like, fuck and he's making all these steel fetish guys out of the i started thinking that like maybe this thing about rust being involved in it is on to something he's somehow involved involved in in the the actual murders oh okay yeah yeah. and if not the original murder then maybe as a way to cope that he started acting out in in the in the modern day like he's snapped or something okay that he's had these the he's his ultimate revelation about where life is 
and what life means, but he's too afraid to commit suicide, so he does things, he, he acts out in other ways. Like I said, yeah. not sure he was in, involved in all the murders that came before, but I started thinking seriously. He's like, well, maybe he did. Like, okay. Like I, I think snap and start, and start recreating these things. I think that's a valid way to interpret that, certainly. Um, the, the way that I got it is after his daughter, I mean, we know that things change drastically for him, and that's kind of the event that pushed all of who Rust is. Yeah. I, I mean, he also, we he, know he about, about some the... undercover drug stuff. Right. Uh, that was not a good time. Right. I understand that. Right. But at the same time, the the point they've been harping on is his daughter. It's been mentioned in several episodes now. But also he said something about that his daughter spared him the sin of being a father. And he also mentioned that when they're talking about this to this girl's family, says he, she seems sad, Marty. And I'm like, I could see a guy whose M.O. is finding tragic, sad people and giving them the gift or the mercy of death. <laughs> okay. And yeah. also... That's creepy. This, so you talked about, I've never been in a room with someone two minutes, didn't know if I if they did it or not. And he gets yeah. a sly smile and he looks at the detectives and said, how long does it take you? Or how do you feel? Like, and Does I'm he like, say that, man? In this episode, Ooh, yeah. Ooh, that's creepy too. And that's the thing that really stood out about like, maybe he's doing this partly as a way to unburden people of their miserable lives in kind of like a Loki from Avengers <laughs> way. And maybe he's also doing that as a kind of a, a challenge. I mean, I guess certainly we have a lot more episodes to go. Um, uh-huh. But my first question would be, what's with the ritualistic type killings then? I don't I don't know where the ritual aspect of that comes from in that kind of scenario. I don't know. I mean, that other thing is there's this particular vision or this particular scene where we see Russ sitting in his apartment and it's just nothing but as Marty calls murder porn mm-hmm. just spread out everywhere and it's on his walls and he's looking and I I kept on thinking like he lives in an apartment. The landlord comes in to change the furnace filter. Sure. What the fuck do you think when you see that? And and they they they, they play yeah. around this other fiction like you know, uh, backdraft was a, essentially about a, a fireman who turns into a pyromaniac for some you know reason. Okay. For, for sure. reasons. Um, and I just wonder like they're playing at that idea that you've got this lawman, this bad man that's kept the 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 bad men at bay. What happens if he flips? Yeah, it's an interesting idea. So, what do you want to talk about as far as the plot goes? Why did Marty and his wife introduce Rust into this this girl who from the so, moment her I, I mean, I looked at her eyebrows as soon as she laid eyes on Matthew McConaughey. And I'm like, those are the eyebrows of a woman who I can't imagine what Marty, what, what Rust would say to fuck this up. Like she, he's getting in. <laughs> he's getting in. If she anybody was, could say it, it would be Rust. But you're right. <laughs> and he, he tried with the whole synth estate. And she oh, found yeah. a way to flirt with him. Oh, does that oh, mean if you feel too double good? Yeah. And he's like, oh, and then he turns out to be this really good dancer. And like, what about this crazy man? Like, if I knew Rust in real life, I certainly wouldn't hook him up with women that I liked or admired or considered a friend. So there's a weird thing between Marty's wife and Rust, right? We've established that. Yes. They have some kind of connection. She understands him in a way that no one else does and vice versa, I think. She has clearly set her friend up on other dates before because she's like, oh, I hope he's not like whatever last time you hooked me up. Um, oh, no, this is the, guy's the other crazier. cop you hooked me up with. He got <laughs> drunk. He puked on her lap, all that stuff. And and they're saying, no, no, this guy ain't going to get anywhere near your lap. Even, even though he showed <laughs> up completely wasted for their first get together and he is objectively. Yeah. Uh, or subjectively insane. Uh, yeah. And you notice during this that he refuses beer, right? Marty goes to pour him a beer and he's like, no. no. Yeah. And Marty's surprised by that. Yep. Um, I don't know if that signifies a positive change in Rust to where he's relating more to people. The fact that he's even going on a date and showing up at this thing. Yeah, why did he, I guess the why is because he found that, yeah, okay, well, this was kind of nice when I had it, you know, this this connection with this woman, so. And I think he trusts her. He, He trusts Marty's wife not to hook him up with somebody who's going to be a horrible person. Yeah. Because she understands him a little bit. Which so also the that ties into the conversation when she was trying to check up on Marty and she was trying to ask Rust whether, you know, essentially will you cover for him or will you vouch for where he's because I trust you. And she also did you get the feeling that she was starting to go into an improper emotional relationship and that's why Rust is like, you need to go to bed. Marty will be there. 
you know, Marty will come home. Uh, yeah, it might be he that, or it might just be, you know, honoring Marty's wishes. Like, um, Marty oh. makes it pretty clear, you need to stay the fuck away from my you, wife. You don't mow another man's lawn. Quote, unquote, mow his lawn. You certainly yeah. don't bag his clippings. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do not. He is the only one who bags his clippings. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think there, I think certainly Marty suspects impropriety there. But I think Marty's prone to think that in the first place because he's doing it himself. Mm -hmm. And then when he calls up, I think it's out of respect for Marty's wishes that he's, he just kind of cuts that call short. The, the other thing I thought is interesting in the dialogue, there's this really interesting scene with Marty and his wife where, you know, she's trying to break him down and get him to have a real honest moment with her. Yeah. And he he does in classic Walter White fashion. He uh -huh. uses the, a, a version of the truth to really sell the lie because it seems like he's opening up to her, but he's really just using this to further his agenda of, uh, you know, f putting her back to sleep so he can get back to fucking his side piece. Sure. But she mentioned something I thought was interesting. And previous episode, she said, you didn't used to be this chicken shit. And this episode, she asserts that you used to be smarter. What was Marty like 10 years ago or when they first met? And why has he they changed? They never left his his room, apparently. I'm trying to arrive at this point where Marty is in denial because of the things he's seen and he's done on this job have worn on him. And he's refused to okay. share these with his wife and his child and has directly led to him having this emotional wall between his wife, which is a barrier to intimacy. And then he goes yeah. out and fucks these other women. But on the other hand... I, I don't know. I don't like, know. That sounds like a plausible path to who Marty is now. Yeah. I imagine a job like that does take a toll on you. Uh, there is another part I want to talk about. Yeah, there's um, one more that we had. I, I do, too. So what's what's yours? Uh, the one I've got sheds a little bit of light on uh, last week's episode and what's going on with Marty's daughters, I think. Um, right. That's the same thing I want to talk about. Okay. So last episode, there was an arranged crime scene and or gangbang, depending on your point of view. I think this tips the scales toward gangbang um, in this episode when we see that she is drawing scenes uh, depicting sex between a man and a woman, uh, and that is very disturbing to her parents. I think she has got some kind of sexual thing going on. I mean, she's discovering it. We know her mother is saying like she knows about it because she needs to know about it. Um, I don't know what this says about the children, mm -hmm. but I think it does say that last episode she was arranging a gangbang there. And... At least hints at how it. is this connected to the case, you know? Because I, I think okay, yeah. There, there's as you dig deeper um, uh, into our spoiler segment, there's a lot of things to notice that kind of maybe connect um, some of these 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 elements together. But I think you're supposed to wonder, like, what the hell? Yeah, it's it's very coincidental that, and also when you look at one of the faces of the dudes that she drew that was having sexual relations with a stick figure woman, uh -huh. it looks like he's wearing a mask. And has kind of like stringy beard hair hanging down from mm. his chin that might be like consistent the with monster. the spaghetti face man. Yeah. Um, wh which I think is is kind of interesting. But on the other hand, it's like, how in the fuck could Marty yeah, investigate something that's in already inside his own family? But on the other hand, it's a very horrific thought. Sure. Yeah, like an inevitability. Like there's this plot moving against you. This is very Lovecraftian that yeah. you don't understand and you're going to be horrified by, but you can't ultimately escape. Yeah. They do a hell of a job giving you a feeling in this show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they really do. And that's what honestly turned me off at the beginning. The feeling was just so dark mm. and so dreadful and sad and full of despair that I I didn't even want to watch it. And as it kind of opens up more and things become more interesting in the plot and things become more interesting character-wise, uh, I started to really get into it. And then, yeah, next episode is the moment where I go, okay, I'm in. it's time for smelling the psychosphere the segment that tries to in a spoiler free fashion plug you into the popular theories and conspiracy theories that were going around the internet at the time the episode is originally aired 
So nothing from, from this information is from episodes past 103, and no one at the time of writing these theories had access to information past 103. First, I want to draw, and I apologize, a lot of this stuff is visual-based, and I, I will show these, I will shove these into the podcast show notes with a little context so you guys can uh, um, check that out. And you can get the show notes on baldmove.com. Uh, sometimes uh, your podcast app will show them, and you can actually link to the stuff and, and look uh, follow along with us. Sometimes you can't, but they are, are all on baldmove.com. First, I want to direct your attention to this police file photo of Marie Fontenot. Okay. All right. She's wearing a flower dress with a really pink terrible. collar, yeah. a pink. Well, you know, it's it's probably the what late eighties. Yeah, that's something you could see Blossom wearing. Sure, punky, totally. Punky Brewster. Uh huh. That's Punky Brewster. The haircut she could have too. Sure. Uh, I want to direct your attention next to a image of the ghost, the quote unquote ghost mm. that Rust saw Some from the previous episode. Right? Speculated could be his daughter. Maybe she's aged up to where he thought she should be. But there is a striking similarity between the facial features, the hair, I mean, other than the bangs, between this girl and Marie Fontenot. Rust had not seen, to our knowledge, Marie before this episode. So Mm -hmm. does that feed into the theory that Rust perhaps has got some kind of drug-fueled double life, Jekyll and Hyde, that he's involved in somehow the disappearance of the girl and he's subconsciously manifesting it by seeing her ghost? Yeah, I think, you know, if you're willing to buy into that theory in the first place based on that evidence and you want to go a step further, this is a, they are about the same age. Um, they look similar. I mean, other than the obvious haircut difference. Um, I would buy that they're the same actress. I, I wouldn't dispute it if you had a gun to my head. Maybe. I also yeah, wouldn't swear tough, that they are. It's tough to see. I, w- I want to say eye color is different, but it's tough to see the it hallucinations is. eye color. It is. But the hair color is similar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Next up, I talked about the poem that's in the, um, the the poem about Carcosa that's in The King in Yellow. Uh-huh. The Richard Chalmers. Is that the one it? that drives you insane? The one that drives you insane. Uh, there's a lot of stanzas of that. I read one last week about the twin sons. This one is strange as the night where black stars rise and strange moons circle through the skies, but stranger still is Carcosa. The woman that um, Rust Cole, she's wearing like, I don't know what you would call that, uh, a poncho, a sleeveless poncho. Yeah. Sleeveless poncho hoodie. She's got black stars conspicuously up the side of her neck. Yeah, tattoos. And as you pointed out when we went over this before the show, she's even got stars on her sleeveless hoodie poncho. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And also, if you look at Dora Lang's diary, she actually has this part of the poem quoted. Strange is the night where black stars rise. She's dr- drawn black stars on the paper. She, and it looks like she's also drawn the moons. Yeah, well, that well. Could, I was thinking that's the twin suns we talked about before okay maybe yeah. yeah you're right they do have different uh they look like maybe like an eclipse almost you yeah know? a sun eclipsing a moon yeah yeah like a sliver of a moon i don't know but uh she's got the and it draws comparison to the woman with the neck tattoos and then yeah. also the quote from russ the king's children were marked and became his angels mm. implying there might so. be a connection this woman might know more than she's letting on she looks shady she does look a little shady. Yeah. I don't. I didn't think of her as shady when they interviewed her, but in the still frame with her eyes all squinty, <laughs> her beady uh-huh. eyes all squinty, she does look a little shady. Yeah, maybe she knows more than she is telling. All right. Uh, one Redditor said that when he looked at the show, he noticed that Marty Hart has a very prominent ring on his finger. And he's like, huh, it wasn't his wedding ring. It's on the opposite hand. And he's kind of fidgeting with it and playing with it. And he went back and looked at the episodes. And in episode one, when Reverend Tuttle from the, you know, he's the leader of the police task force or the guy agitating for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he's talking to the detectives, he is fiddling with a very similar looking ring on his hand. And in this scene, Marty is subconsciously or otherwise mirroring his body language. He's also yeah. fidgeting with the ring. And if you look at these uh, close-ups, the ring that both of them are wearing looks to be very similar in design. Hmm. So I like that from the angle of maybe Marty is just kind of deferring to a guy who seems to be more in command here. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that's something you do, right? Like when a the leader of a pack does something, a lot of people language, try to mirror sure, body sure. language fit in. Yeah, sure. 
Now, another Redditor on this thread noticed that they could be Masonic rings, which is something that's fairly common for people to have. Okay. Uh, But also someone else noticed that the preacher, Joel, from the Tent Revival Church, Mm -hmm. says that he suspects of the people that burnt down his church, some of the widow's sons must have wanted us off the land. Widow's sons is a Freemason reference. Now, I did not know Mm. that, but I looked it up on Wikipedia, and apparently there's, you know, Freemasons base a lot of their more obscure occult, I don't even know if they're occult. But they base a lot of their beliefs out of the biblical scriptures. Yeah. And I guess the architect of Solomon's temple, uh, his name was Hiram, um, was said to be a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali. And, you know, they, they uh, I guess, patterned themselves after this, this master architect, and they called themselves the Masons. And a widow's son is something that is referred to Masons as, as a whole. So you've got guys okay. wearing Masonic rings, maybe connected to the investigation, possibly <laughs> burning down a church that contains a lot of evidence for the murder investigation. I don't need to tell you how involved Freemasons are in almost every conspiracy. I'm not saying they're actually involved. Sure. But it, A number one is like Illuminati. Yeah. A number two is the Masons. They're always up in there. I was up in the conspiracy theories. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's interesting. Certainly, we get a lot of occult stuff in the show. Um, it has a very occult vibe to it, and I think the next thing we're going to talk about is also mixed up in that. It, it, I definitely think that could be interesting. Remember we talked about, I think it was last episode, Dora Lang, we visited her mom, and she's crazy, and she's talking about why wouldn't the father bathe her child? We saw something on her mantelpiece that we're like, what the fuck, that was not commented <laughs> on. It's five horsemen wearing very sinister-looking kind of camo, ghillie-style outfits with big black dunce caps on their head. Uh-huh. And there's a little girl standing kind of forlornly in the foreground in front of them. Someone noticed that there are one, two, three, four, five men and the one girl. And then mm-hmm. that also matches the composition of the Barbie-based reenactment of the murder investigation slash snuff film slash gang rape scene. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five Ken dolls around the one blonde Barbie. One, two, three, four, five creepy-ass horsemen around the blonde little girl. Is there some kind of synergy in these theories, do you think? Yeah. How's that how's that psychosphere smelling? I think it smells pretty good. I I think if you don't draw a connection between those two, you're kinda crazy. Okay. Now I don't know what it says. I, I don't know if you know the Cajun Mardi Gras is mixed up in this or the Freemasons are mixed up in this, but the Freemasons it's what it's certainly well interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um that's the other thing. I saw on Reddit that a man from Louisiana stated that he didn't see those images as creepy because that is a traditional Cajun Mardi Gras. Okay. And apparently they have, and you can, if you Google Cajun Mardi Gras and do an image search, you will see uh, tons of people dressed up as exactly that. And I guess the way it works is kind of Halloweenish for adults. Is okay. that men yep. ride horseback from farm to farm. And the farmers, if they're wearing good costumes, will give them meat, like deer and chicken and beef. <laughs> oh, if, you're cute. Here, have two candy bars. If, if they're yeah. wearing okay costumes, they give them, like, vegetables and okra and stuff like that. If they're wearing shitty costumes or maybe none at all, they get a lump of coal or nothing. And everybody gets drunk on beer, and it's supposedly a good time. So Weird. Now, I do feel like visually that's meant to be intimidating and weird, but that kind of hinges on me culturally being ignorant of what's going on there. Yeah, I think so. So what does that mean for the show? I feel like this is not made for people that are familiar with Cajun traditions or I even Cajun food. I think it's a general feeling that the show is trying to give you. You know, we've talked about this feeling. before. Yeah, a, a little bit of that that creepy occult vibe. Um, is, you know, stuff with stars and the king in yellow. I think they throw things in that aren't directly connected to the plot, right? Mm. Just to give you an atmosphere. And I think that's where a lot of this stuff lies. Okay. Um, But I think the occult angle is good because if you're talking about killings and you're talking about symbols on bodies and rituals and stuff like that, the occult plays a big part in what we think of when we think of those things. Okay. Here's a non-visual thing to talk about. Uh, Speaking of Tuttle, he of the Masonic Ring, the Bible Thumper Tuttle is pushing hard to have his own private... I don't know if it's his own private. He's stumping for this police task force, I yeah. guess is his brainchild, investigating occult or satanic or non-Christian crimes to take over the investigation. He also has ties uh, to... I think he's the, the, 
the cousin or maybe the brother of the of the governor of Louisiana. Okay. So that implies that maybe he's trying to cover something up. And also we found out in this episode that he's behind these little not-for-profit religious schools for disadvantaged young people. Yeah. Which would provide people within his sphere of influence access to young, impressionable boys and girls who maybe are down on their luck and susceptible to kind of cult tactics. It would. See, I, I think you might be leaning a little bit toward the conspiracy area here. Uh-huh. Um, because it could also be the case that this guy is just looking out for his best interest. If there's a, a, a cult going around killing people, he has an interest as a Christian religious leader. Sure. To have this anti-Christian task force look into it because he wants to be sure they're not coming after Christians, not coming after his people. That's true. But on so the other I, hand, if you're a if you're somehow involved in underground snuff ring with yeah. antlers and oh, yeah. young women, this would be having a lot of power to cover that up and shift resources around and making sure nothing comes of it. Having I political cover, yeah. police cover, and access is interesting. Definitely, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Sure, I understand. You're 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 not wanting to take a whiff that deeply of the psychosphere. <laughs> Uh, last one, this is, is kind of a visual Easter egg, or maybe um, maybe it would be like uh, the subliminal type of thing okay. that uh, the Fukunaga and uh, Pizzolatto are trying to do to us. There's a, the, In the yellow flyer that we saw last episode, it says, Are you lost and alone? Jesus Christ will save you. You are our family, blah, blah, blah. All of the cans... He's, you know, Russ is drinking nothing snooty. He's drinking uh, Lone Star beer. All the cans are carefully staged so that the labels are rotated such that we only see the L-O and S-T from Lone Star, (laughs) which spells lost. Uh Uh-huh. Someone else on Reddit noticed that the flip side of that would be if you're left with the N-E-A-R from Lone Star, the near side of the can would actually spell out near. What Mm. the hell does that mean? Is Rust lost? Is Jesus Christ going to save him? Is he near all good questions? Is he near is is he near the answer to the murder investigation? Is he near the actual murders themselves? <laughs> Are these just I sub- mean that ties in with the idea that maybe he's committed the murders, yeah. Is just this a subliminal thing to suggest that uh he's lost? Just it's just a visual thematic thing, a little fun they're having. Yeah, I mean that's what I'm prepared to to say. Okay. Uh, I think it's probably just a visual uh, anomaly or just having fun. I don't know. You got. I think to fully explore that theory, you got to play the anagram game too, right? Well, you, you got to take those number, those letters, you got to jumble them up, you got to see what comes out of it. Well, I mean, obviously, you got the horse cult connection. You got these guys running uh-huh. around in the mud. That's, that's clear ho- horse cult. <laughs> Russ is doing all the, all the right, box work. Yeah. He's, the, he's the chore slut. I mean, it's starting to look pretty we, conclusive. We I don't know if I've been whiffing it. the psychosphere too much. Or if that's the turpentine I've been huffing over here. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's starting to look pretty good to me. Again, this is all in the show notes. So if you want to go to baldmove.com and look up this episode uh, and click through to the article, all these links with some context will be in the, the article for the uh, podcast. If you shop on Amazon, please remember to use our affiliate link at amazon.baldmove.com. You get the same great Amazon experience, and we get a chunk of Amazon's profits just for sending you their way. If you'd like to send in your feedback, you can do so by emailing it to truedetective at baldmove.com. You can find all of our content at baldmove.com and participate in our discussion forums. Keep up with our latest release schedules by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter. 